Uh, ben, hello? You there? Oh, hey, what's what? up, Chris? What is, uh, what's the status on your, uh, your laptop? Do you have the podcast for this week? Yeah, yeah. No, I actually had a good buddy of yours. Steve Gould was on the show this week. Any, any fun stories you got for me? Uh, well, actually, it's kind of cool I met Steve. I met Steve playing drums as an opener when he was playing with Owl City. I was playing with my brother when he was doing a solo project. Met Steve and then actually became his tech maybe like two years later, a year later. So it was cool that I already knew him. And yeah, Steve was kind of there for the birth of all of this. I kind of walked into the first day of rehearsal with a crude prototype of the Big Fat Syndrome stuff. And he was super into it. And we became friends. And the rest is history. Yeah, he kind of mentioned that. He's, he's going to sue you. Uh, so I didn't want to bring this up well, at this conversation. But good thing my cousin is a lawyer. <laughs> No, there was really not. No, I'm just kidding. Please don't sue me, Steve. I have nothing. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna go. <laughs> go make a sandwich. Enjoy. <laughs> All right, peace, dude. Bye bye. All right, we're here with Steve Gould. Thanks for being the show, man. Appreciate it. Uh, you bet, Ben. Thanks for having me. I enjoy this kind of stuff a lot, so I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. So, if people don't know, this is a big deal because you are the Steve of Steve's Donut. <laughs> I am. The, I am the Steve. <laughs> How does it feel to know your biggest accomplishment is having a seven mil plastic head named after you with a hole in the center? Dude, well, I'll tell you that story briefly. Like, you know, Chris and I meeting when he was. Uh, a crew member for Sarah Burrell handling all of her guitar and keyboard changes. And then because he's also a drummer, he's like kind of taking care of my world as well. So he wasn't just my drum tech. He was doing a lot of stuff on that tour. And, and I, I know he had worked for Sarah for many years prior to me getting on board with, with her group. But early on in the rehearsals, he's like noticing all of these different uh, snare treatments that I have. And I, I had them all named. Uh, the one where it's just like, a drum head just cut out in a circle, like the original muscle that you guys sure. called. Like I called that the pancake. Okay. And then I had one that had the center hole cut out, which I called the donut. And I had written on them uh, in Sharpie, like the ones like the pancake and then the donut. And then I had one that was made out of a t-shirt, which is uh, kind of like the EQ, the Roots EQ muffles that are out there. Like the t-shirt one, it does that same thing. There's the cloth. It's got a different, you know, vibe to the muffling. That one was called uh, the waffle. So I had like the waffle and the pancake and the donut, and I, I like would, your you know, write out exactly <laughs> breakfast foods. Yeah, I, I, would, I would write out uh, for Chris on the set lists, like you know, for this song it's this snare drum with the waffle, and then for this song it's this snare drum open, but then for the next song same snare drum but add the donut or whatever. And he thought all that stuff was really cool, and had he's like, you're not the first person that I've seen who like cuts out old drum heads, but you are the first guy I've seen that has like different versions of it. And, like, I've been thinking about starting a company about this, like, this kind of thing. Would you want in? And I'm like, no, heck no. Like, I, <laughs> I, I am not businessman guy. Like, yeah. I don't, that intimidates me and it makes me so uninspired, actually. It's so uninspiring to think about all of the logistics behind running a company and administrative headaches and whatever. Uh, 
so he was like, well, I'm, I'm going for it. And so he, so he did. And he, he ended up showing me like an early prototype of the first one, which had like a thicker rubber gasket around the outside and yep. kind of like cut, cut too much decibel when you put it on the drum, like, you know, change the muffling, but also change the volume output significantly. And then, then he like showed me, he was making ones that had the hole cut in the center, like my donut. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then one night we were in, I remember we were in New York maybe doing like a TV thing or a one-off or something like that. And he's like, hey, I got something for you. Can I, are you in your, your room at the hotel? I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll come up. So he comes up and he walks in the door and, and gives me like a packaged Steve's Donut and it says Steve's Donut on it, like on the package. And I was like, what is this, man? He's like, it's the model that I'm going to sell. I'm going to call it, I'm going to name it after you. And I was just like, dude, I was so moved. Mm-hmm. I was like, like kind of like tearing up a little bit, like, oh my sure. gosh, man, like, thank you. Like, I wouldn't expect him to include me at all because, you know, it's it's not like I've got proprietary, like, rights in the, like, in the idea realm or whatever sure. that's called. It's like, I don't, I don't pretend to own any of this. The fact that you would loop me in in any way felt very, like, generous of him. And I'm, I mean, I'm proud of it, man. Like, I'd, I'd probably tell people way more often than is appropriate like oh that that was that was named after me (laughs) well it's funny that no one really ever questions it it's just like it's a part of the the drummer zeitgeist now so it's it's fun that it's just it's not like a weird name like why it's just you know but i'm happy to have yeah steve gould the guy so dude uh, like i said that's it's it's cool to be associated with it in that way and it's not something that chris needed to do at all like he he just did not need to do that, and the fact that he chose to is something that I really admire and appreciate about just who what kind of a guy he is, you know. Yeah, I admire Chris for quite a lot, so I'm I'm in the same boat as you. He did actually, speaking of Chris, want me to ask, um, do you still have the rack that he built for you, the little side <laughs> snare rack? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I don't really use it, but I have it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we were joking. I, I was like, "That's kind of something we should maybe make a little." A few of them and see if people like is it because like exactly what you were saying you have you're very particular about your snare sounds and stuff so you had like not only what you know just the pancakes and the waffles and stuff but you actually had different snares that you'd interchange yeah i had four drums on that tour four snares and so the one would be sitting on the the on the drum set and the other three would be sitting right behind me mm-hmm. and um instead of just like sitting them on the ground he like just made this little rack that so they wouldn't roll away they're still like sitting there like vertically instead of like on their side they're not like stacked up on a shelf um and so the rack was really low profile it's just like a really smart idea like oh good thinking man he did the same thing with uh i have these brazilian uh like goat toenails like goat hooves okay um that are like a like a rattle yeah and i set them on the drum like a muffle uh so you know like people put their car keys on the snare or whatever and they kind of like rattle a little bit Mm -hmm. these Obviously, these goat hooves rattle a lot more because that's the whole design of them as a percussion instrument. When they're sitting on top of the snare drum and they kind of make this weird kind of crackling sound, it's cool. It's like a like a really dry hip hop snare drum that is clipping on the on the preamp. It, yeah. It's kind of like the vibe of it. And he saw me playing, and and you know I'm playing and kind of like pushing them up every maybe eight bars because they would start to slide down toward the middle of the drum and I push them up again. And he's like, dude, I'm going to come up with some way to so you don't have to keep pushing those around. And I was like, oh, it's fine. I've been doing that for years. And he's like, yeah, but, I mean, you shouldn't have to. 
next rehearsal, he had gone out and found a, a magnet and like a little like hook thing and just attached that to the, so that they would stick to the hardware on the rack tom mm-hmm. and then just stick there. And then they didn't slide down ever again. And then when I wanted to take them off, I would just like undo the magnet and stick them onto the hi-hat stand. So they're just like dangling there in the hi-hat stand. So they're at the ready. I mean, yeah. it was like such a great idea. And I, it's like, man, Chris Mazzarisi just, just putting connecting dots and making my life easier. His mind is always spinning in, in the most peculiar ways that peculiar, but also like obvious ways. Like, why have I not and, thought about that? Right. And helpful. Like, yeah. Like, he's got a unique perspective that everybody wants once they get on board with it you're like oh wow all of us have benefited from this idea that only you had yeah well we could talk about chris all day but let's uh let's get into the top five drumming moments that shaped uh informed the way or changed um the way you play today um so you sent me five and you sent me the specific sections of them so i have them all set to go but the number one is a band that so i'm from seattle and I feel that it's it's sacrilegious that I never got into them, but it's Go off uh, Verses by Pearl Jam. And yeah, if mm-hmm. you just want to kind of set it up, and then we can listen to it. Well, the setup is that when I started playing drums in 1991, that was like when Pearl Jam you know, was on the record cycle of 10, like their first album, their mm-hmm. like breakthrough record. And Nirvana uh, had put out Nevermind, and like Green Day was just about to release Dookie, and like all this kind of like Stone Temple Pilots, their first record, Core, the the alternative like post like the glam rock butt rock thing in the eighties, like moving past that into the nineties thing. That was right when I started playing. Mm-hmm. So this is all really formative music for me, just from the perspective of. 11-year-old, 12-year-old Steve hearing drumming for the first time after having learned to play the drums myself. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously having heard music in the 80s when I was a child, but not knowing how to play drums, I'm not connecting the dots of what I'm hearing to what I could do on the instrument. Figured out how to play drums, and the first album that I started listening to closely after I learned how to play drums was Pearl Jam. It was 10. And then I got really into it, so when, when Verses came out, which I think was 92 or 93... I was a little better at drumming and I was more excited about Pearl Jam and this opening track uh, just kind of bowled me over the way the whole thing worked and I like I'm I'm so excited about this entire record but in particular uh, this first track go is just like it's a uh, it's a kind of like a revisiting of the earliest version of Steve being super pumped about drums Okay. Like this, there there isn't a track that would do that more than this one. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's play it. Um. So you have the beginning, basically, um, the opening sequence, and then also same song starting at two thirty nine. So I'll drop both those in.
that moment, that opening sequence, I remember the placement of the kick drums in that pattern. Uh, one, uh, two, and e, uh, four. Like, boom, 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 boom. Like, that was just something that didn't... I'd never heard anybody do that, and I didn't know how to do it at first. Like, sure. like when I heard it, I knew what it was, but I didn't know how to play it. And it was one of the first things that I remember experiencing that. Like, oh, I, I, I hear what's happening, but I can't get my foot to actually do it. I had to go really slow and kind of like deconstruct the whole thing. Um, I like how as a band, they kind of just, it's, you can almost hear them just like sound checking in a way. It's like they, they keep like starting and stopping. Uh, Dave Evers says he's playing with such like cool pocket. I love the way the like weight of the drums feel, even though the snare is tuned really high and kind of almost piccolo-ish sure, yeah. tone. But he just he's playing like he really means it, and and then they stop and they do that uh, kind of like seven cycle polyrhythm thing. It's like a seven four measure right before they drop into the downbeat of the tune where they mm-hmm. all hit together. Yeah, he like counts it off two three four. Like like that the math of that again for like twelve twelve year old me, you know it's like prog rock kind of and I'm like trying to figure out how that all works trying to trying to like wrap my head around what exactly that was so that I could count the tune off for myself and kind of imagine myself playing it. I did this thing back then because people that were older than me you know they're like hey if you want to learn how you know, to get better at the drums, if you want to grow as a musician, you should just play along with the records that you like. And I was like, oh, cool idea. I just can't do that because <laughs> it's 1992 and I don't have a stereo system that's loud oh, enough yeah. to compete with my drum set. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have like headphones or whatever. All I have is this little like tape player radio thing. And it's not anywhere near the volume that I would need it to be to play along with the music. So... I did this uh, exercise all the time called the imaginary band, or that's what I call it now with my students. But it's basically like I would listen to the tune until I had it memorized. And then I would stop, uh, you know, press stop on the tape and run downstairs to the basement where my drums were and then play along with the song as if the rest of the band was in my head. And like I I was listening to the lyric and listening to the guitar parts and maybe like <clears throat> I get done playing like the second chorus and I couldn't remember what came next in the song. So I'd run back upstairs and listen to it and like, oh yeah, that's what happens next. And then run back downstairs and try to play the whole thing top to bottom. And eventually I had uh, that entire record, uh, the first album, 10 and then verses. Like I had the whole album memorized with like all of the parts in my head, like the bass yeah. lines and the guitar lines. And I would, I would get home from school and like perform the whole record like it was a concert and I would like imagine my I'm just by myself in the basement sure. playing along with what's what feels like the full band and then kind of like finishing the song and imagining that there was like applause and then like counting off the next tune uh, and I mean I just had a I, I would burn hours and hours after school doing that at age 13. <laughs> Did you set up a mirror and like l- just like try and look cool too and no, it wasn't about that. It was about my imagination. Like I already looked cool just in my imagination of like, like I'm, I'm I'm not in my basement anymore. I'm playing these songs with Pearl Jam, and we are in like a a club. I remember a lot of the performances took place in the club kind of atmosphere where they shot their uh, video for Even Flow because it's just like a live performance video. Okay. 
and I'd, I'd seen that on MTV and it's like, oh, that's the kind of place that Pearl Jam plays concerts. So that, that was the kind of place that I transported to in my imagination. Yeah. Did, did that influence the way you tuned your drums? I know you, you did mention how, how high-pitched that snare drum is, but did you try and make yourself sound like that as well right off the bat? Yeah, totally. Uh, one of the first pieces of gear that I bought after the initial drum set that my parents got me, which was just like a garbage generic brand called, like beginner brand called Sunlight. Uh, I got oh, yeah. a, thir- a 13 by 4 uh, Premier snare drum. Like oh, jeez. Like it was like a birch or something. Like the, the wood was just like a blonde color, 13 inch by 4 inch depth, and I could kind of crank it up to that like Spin Doctors kind of tone that everybody oh, was yeah. going for back then. Sure. Yeah, that's that intro's cool too. I mean, for the for the seven eight thing that you're talking about, but also it kind of starts almost three times because he starts with that beat and then he pauses with the hi hat, does his little doubles, and then goes into it. So it's kind of the arrangement of the beginning is a little more avant garde too. Yes, which you know what? Like nobody told me that that was avant garde. Uh, nobody said this is not how you're supposed to do it. Like like it just seemed <laughs> like the way you would do it. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I had this idea like bands will sometimes have an extended intro to one of their songs and that's fine. As opposed to like the, like don't bore us, get to the chorus kind of like rule. It's like I, I, I wasn't, nobody had taught me that yet. Nobody had mm-hmm. taught me don't bore us, get to the chorus. Instead, I was just like listening to this intro and thinking, man, this sounds really awesome. And it, and it, it kind of like the 30 seconds or so where they're just kind of like jamming and starting and stopping like you're pointing out it kind of revs the engine a little bit for that moment when when like the the guitar starts feeding back and he counts it off and they do those hits it's like it's 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 more exciting at that point than it would be if they were to just kind of come out cold with those hits which i i think is a is a cool lesson in just like context and how to maybe like lay down a plot instead of just drop in on the punchline right out of nowhere but like kind of like set it up a little bit Totally, and it's it's been like four minutes since you listened to it. But are is he playing quarter notes or eighth notes on the hats? Yeah, dude, it's quarters. That's something I picked up from Dave Abrazzi really early, and then have subsequently realized was more of like a Max Weinberg thing in uh, Bruce uh, Springsteen's band. Yeah, like smashing quarter notes on the sloshy hi hats instead of always eighth notes. Uh, it like that that tempo that's pretty quick. Right? What is that? Like 130, 135? Yeah, yeah. And like, he's like, there's not a lot of room to play eighth notes. So if he were to force the issue with the eighth notes, everything would feel a little more cluttered. So it's like he's uh, kind of gracefully gliding over the top of that with a lot of power and still playing at that faster BPM. Which it's, makes it's like a. I was going to say, which, which makes that, that bass drum pattern he's doing that much harder because he's doing 16th notes on top of, you know. But it also yes. leaves room for the guitar because I noticed that during that part, it, the maturity of that, take away what the guitar's doing, it's just a cool beat. But I'm curious if he consciously did the quarter notes because the guitar's doing the the guitar's doing the sixteenth notes. So he's letting yes. that be that subdivision that keeps it moving a little bit. So you you get the energy, but the hi hat doesn't need to be doing, you know, some hip hop beat right. that I would assume to do right away. The, the unison that's ha- happening between the guitar and the bass, they're both playing that riff, which is like a, a lot of notes. Yeah. And yeah, I remember young me was kind of like, oh, when the bass player is playing a lot of notes, I should play a lot of notes with him. 
Sure. And then, you know, you get a little bit older and realize, oh, man, oftentimes the bass feels way better if I just let him take all those busy notes and I myself stand in the background with something more spacious. And then the, the two kind of complement each other instead of just always assuming that I will like unison double what someone else in the band is doing. In fact, I remember one of my good buddies, uh, Chris Morrissey, he was the MD when I was in Burrell's band. And he plays in Mark Giuliano's band now. Like he's like a jazz guy. Oh wow! Uh, he and I grew up playing jazz together in Minnesota. And I remember, like, you know, twenty, twenty-one years old. We were playing in a trio with this guitar player, and he, he said to me once, he's like, "I feel like Steve. Every time I play something, you just like try to play along with me the same thing. Like, like you imagine that the only way for us to play together is for you to double what I'm doing, but." Sometimes, like, if I'm playing something, I want you to play something that marries well without doubling, like, complementing instead of doubling. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, oh, wow, that's a great idea, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, like, like kind of like feeling foolish for having not thought of that myself, but also yeah. grateful for... I mean, he and I are the same age. We kind of came up with the same... Like, he, he would also tell you that Pearl Jam was one of his, like, initial favorite bands even though now he plays jazz or and we were playing jazz together at that like college age period but like we have the same kind of musical pedigree of development and to to have him speak in also like come we're on the same page we're on the same age group we're on the same point in our musical journeys but he still had like really great points to help me grow and it was uh yeah oh, oh, a lot to that guy yeah, a similar thing happened to me, not directly to me, but when Aaron Sterling mentioned, he's like, the bass drum doesn't have to always do what the bass is doing. Just that little tiny thing was like, what? No, 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 no. It always has to. They have to be married. <laughs> the bass player and the drummer have to be best friends. You know, it's right. like, no, no. <laughs> I want to um, know what the bass player is doing. Sure. I want to know what he's doing, and then I want to choose to play exactly what he's playing or choose not to. And I want to be able to give you an explanation for why I made that choice. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's certainly not a hard and fast rule or law that I have to just double what the bass player is doing. Definitely Yeah, not. Ragoff Mayrotra on the last episode was talking about Elvin Jones, how whenever he played with Coltrane, his ride cymbal would always do complementary but also opposite rhythms that, and I, I forget the name of the pianist uh, that he referenced. McCoy but uh, he was, Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the, like Sterling, you you mentioned his comment about the bass and the kick drum. Like Sterling's a jazz guy. There's something about the jazz world that almost like forces you to listen a little more closely mm -hmm. and consider the way things marry together in and all the all the myriad ways that things could marry together. And it doesn't surprise me at all that um, Elvin would have that kind of listening chops. Uh, because that's just kind of like required of the jazz musician and in in rock is, is like less there's less need to listen I, there's not necessarily any less benefit it's beneficial to listen in both <laughs> sure. situations but in rock you're not you're not like required to listen as closely as you are in jazz it's one of the many things that i find really valuable in that kind of cross training exercise like i don't get hired to play jazz ever anymore but like i still listen all the time and i, I think it it puts my head in a in a better spot yeah, that's kind of why I did this format selfishly is to be influenced to more drummers that I don't know. And a lot of people have given me some cool jazz recommendations. So it's been very beneficial, which is right a few weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to even mention the Elvin Jones thing. So I'm cool now. <laughs> You're cool now, <laughs> This is ben. a big deal. <laughs>
Hey guys, we'll be right back with the show, but I wanted to talk real quick about Waves Audio. I use an endless amount of their plugins, including the Vocal Rider for this podcast. And for my drumming, I use the SSL channel, Abbey Road Saturator, CLA Drums for that easy, quick, polished sound, and, and many, many more. We're an affiliate member, and if this show brings you any sort of value, please kick the please kick. <laughs> please click the link in the show notes to make your next purchase. It supports me directly and helps keep the show going. So, all right, now back to the top five ways to make soup. All right, so the number two, Oh No, The Radio, off uh, the Owsley self-titled. And I actually don't know Owsley, but I listened to this song, and I, I love power pop. So I'm, I'm assuming I will like a majority of their other stuff. But you just said start from the beginning and play through the first minute. Let's listen to it, and then we'll discuss it. Okay. Yeah, that's a flawless recording. Whoever engineered that is amazing. <laughs> right? Okay, so I want to I want to say this quick about Will Owsley. It's not a band. It's just, just a guy. His name is Will Owsley. He lived in Nashville, um, played on on a bunch of people's records, like as a session guy. I think he was in Amy Grant's band for a little while, too, as the guitar oh, player. Wow. Um, he's the songwriter and vocalist on that stuff. And he... Uh, committed suicide, um, I think 15 years ago or or so, uh, tragically, um, obviously like mental health is a real, a real thing and people feeling depressed or whatever, man. I mean, you know, it's plagued the art world for the entirety of at least the music, the modern music industry. Uh, so like rest in peace, Will Owsley, he made two records of his own stuff before passing. Uh, that's Chris McHugh on drums on that and Chris McHugh is one of my heroes like dude when I first came across his playing uh was in the 90s he was in a Christian band called Whiteheart for a little while and then um I I kind of like didn't realize that was him in Whiteheart and then in the 2000s when I started paying attention to session players like especially in the country world in Nashville the Christian and country stuff started seeing his name over and over again and started realizing that every time I really liked the drumming. It was always him playing. Uh, he plays on a lot of the stuff that Dan Huff produces, like all the Rascal Flats records and uh, like almost everything that Keith Urban did for the first half half of Keith's career. And he plays on like every Carrie Underwood record. And his his pocket just feels it feels incredible to me. So there's that. Like you pointed out, the tones. And like he's always working in environments where the engineers and the techs are just dialed in, and the sounds are incredible. Yeah. 
but then he's got this extra little degree of smartness that I notice in his playing, where he's always playing the thing that feels like, you know, the the obvious right choice, which is kind of how modern pop country works. Like that that genre doesn't revolve around like innovation in the parts. It's not like uh, indie rock or stuff where people are getting really creative about how to approach. It's just just backbeat, straight ahead fills. And yet there's always these little ingredients in Chris's playing, whether it's in the grooves, uh, his kick drum patterns, or even in the fills or whatever. They're not run of the mill. Mm-hmm. They're they're interesting, and it's just it's interesting on like a couple layers deeper than the surface. So like I always find myself really enamored with his choices, even though it's a Carrie Underwood track, and all of his choices fit within the like the goalposts of just that kind of music. You know, like radio friendly yeah. and maybe allegedly um, canned or or uh, like formulaic, but not not McHugh and like I I've just gotten so much out of listening to him like I, I would consider myself a disciple of his playing even though I've never met him personally a good example of what I mean in, in that song just now is after that first chorus the way he drops those uh, eighth note triplets at the end into the downbeat between the snare drum and the floor yeah. tom it just it fits perfectly in the moment, but it's not the kind of thing that anybody expects right then. But the unexpectedness doesn't throw me, at least as a listener, I'm not like, whoa, that was out of left field and out of nowhere, and I think maybe a little bit forced, and maybe the drummer was just trying to prove to me that he knows what eighth note <laughs> yeah. triplets are. We hear you, bud. Like, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. You went to music school. <laughs> it's like, no, he, he actually sounds like. I mean, to me, it feels really coherent. Uh, and interesting in in the context of the whole song, mm-hmm. which is, I, I guess that's like an example of of how Chris Chris McHugh impacted me. It's like here's something that the artist is gonna feel great about, the audience isn't gonna be distracted by, but anybody in the room who's a drummer is gonna notice a little bit of additional sauce compared to what the standard approach would be. You're always trying to, as a drummer, make something, and maybe this is my approach, you always want, want to have these things that make people air drum in the car. Like, oh, there's yeah. this part coming up, and then someone who's driving just goes, uh, 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 uh. That's the thing that you kind of strive for. That's not too yes. complicated, but someone who doesn't play drums looks forward to it. Yeah, dude. It's, it's, I mean, it's like a hook. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a literal, using the drums to create a counter melody uh, that functions like a hook, and people Absolutely. end up people end up humming it to themselves, which is what makes them want to air drum it. I, I feel like, uh, I mean, Dave Grohl didn't show up on any of those five moments, but he's a master at that, playing fills that become part of the song, where, you know, in most instances, the drum fill is kind of like a, just a transition device to get you from one part of the song to the next, but the fill itself doesn't actually matter in the minds of the listeners. It's not memorable, and guys who can create memorable, hooky drum fill moments... Yeah, that's that's what makes people want to air drum, and it's like such a wonderful contribution to the music. That entire record, the self-titled Owsley record, is just it's one of my Desert Island records. Well, yeah. yeah again, if only for just the sonic value of that, the everything totally. sounds so good. Those toms, the beginning, I so know. punchy. <laughs> that's like the definition of that modern punchy drum sound. Yeah. Um, all right, number three, uh, which is uh, Mojo Pin. 
off Grace by Jeff Buckley, and that's mm -hmm. uh, Matt Johnston. We love Matt. Okay, I have to interrupt. This is the second time I've done this in this podcast. It's Matt Johnson. Johnson, Johnson, Johnson. Damn it, Ben. I actually took a few lessons with Matt in, uh, in Echo Park a few years ago, and then uh, I, I didn't go back because I, <laughs> I was like, what you just told me is I'm going to spend the next 10 years working on. So, But yeah, uh, yeah you said, uh, so it's off that track, start at 345, and then the moment um, starts at 419. But yeah, let's just start at 345. That's like the third time around that that moment has happened in the tune, like the like the turnaround prior to a verse. He's got that like Afro-Cuban thing happening, and then dragging the snare drum along, like however you want to count the tempo. If these are the quarter notes, then those are the triplet eighth notes, and yeah. he plays a figure that takes the triplet eighth notes, like he like he goes to straight eighth notes. And then just quarter notes, and it feels it feels like he's got the snare drum on like a dial on a drum machine, and he's just like turning the dial down, like yeah, it's, you know, like in Ableton, like it's just uh, like via processing, it's just like be like a downturn in tempo, like a uh, what do they call it, Dicello Rondo or whatever, um, like it's it's slowing down manually, like someone's imposing a slowdown on it. But he's, yeah. but he's just like playing that and he's just accessing his knowledge of subdivision. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons why that track would stand out to me. That whole record, uh, mm -hmm. one of which is just like Jeff Buckley singing like, you know, like a, like a Hindustani vocalist on like a Ravi Shankar recording or something. Like, he, you know, Jeff Buckley's singing like an angel uh, while also playing in like rock context. Uh, all that stuff was pretty influential for me when I first heard that music in like, I guess it would be like 2000 or 2001 when I first heard that stuff. And yeah. then listening to the complexity of Matt's like uh, subdivision awareness. That's, I mean, mo mostly what I'm saying is that it sounds like a dude who plays jazz, understands world music, understands ryth rhythms that aren't just rock and roll, and then revisiting a rock and roll context with that understanding and having the kind of nuance to bring uh, into those little moments that are just like f kind of flying under the radar, but they, uh, like those details just, man, it gets me going. I'm, I'm so into it. It's so crazy as a drummer thinking that something you do could, it's such a, it's definitely not a throwaway, but something so small could influence someone 20 years later or and continue to influence someone such a cool like just make every note matter no note left behind <laughs> yes yes i have a, a friend in um in nashville who says that you don't ever play notes that are neutral you, the notes that you're playing are either helping the song or they're detracting from the song mm. so you've got to treat every note that you play as if you're trying to be helpful 
because I mean I feel like I remember uh, the periods of my life as a drummer where I thought the decisions I were making were like more or less neutral like I could just kind of play whatever I wanted it didn't matter not mm-hmm. realizing that if I'm not aiming for my notes to be helpful then they're probably unhelpful like the thing is probably worse because I'm playing those notes and I'm just telling myself that they're neutral and that it's fine and that it doesn't matter yeah. and I can just kind of like keep myself entertained with all of these extra notes that are actually just bogging the whole thing down I think the everyone's inclined to do notes that shouldn't be there. I mean, I would say any drummer, you you play your first take just to kind of get the sounds, and you go in the control room, and you're like, yeah, 80% of what I'm doing should not be there. You <laughs> right. know, you're always, right. yeah, your first uh, assumption of what the song needs is is always overdoing it. I'm assuming in this in this format, there's going to be a lot of grace on this. So I'm excited that this is a a new one to dive into. So the next one is, Where Does a Stranger Go on Christmas Eve? Off uh, Body Popping by Happy Apple. Body Popping. But it's the, body the pop- title. <laughs> body Popping. <laughs> it's spelled body, and I don't even know why. I think the... because I think I, I mentioned Brody Simpson. So, Body Popping. <laughs> the full title of it is uh, Body Popping, Moonwalking, Top Rocking. And it's all like okay. breakdancing okay. moves. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to edit that out. All right, so you've got to have, uh, it's the first minute. Let's listen to it. Okay, so here's a little background on that band. Happy Apple, they're all from Minneapolis. Uh, the drummer's name is Dave King. He's really oh, well that's known. that's Dave. That's Dave. Uh, he's not known for being in that band because uh, Happy Apple sounds so similar to The Bad Plus, and The Bad Plus has just always had a lot more of the music industry machine behind it in terms of marketing and whatever. Uh, but Happy Apple is a lot older than the bad plus i think happy apple formed in like 96 or, or uh, so and um that's michael lewis on saxophone michael is in uh bon Iver. so oh, okay. if you recognize his tone like on a tenor like a, i remember when i guess it was uh the second bon Iver record where some like saxophone playing started showing up like in the band uh and I, i'm like man it sounds mm-hmm. like michael and then i found out that it was his his sound is really signature, and I I just I really love his musicianship in general. Um, he was a he played bass in Andrew Bird's band for a while. He's just Michael's oh, okay. one of the one of the like staple of staple corners of, of the Minneapolis music scene, which is where I'm from originally. Uh, that's Eric Fratsky on bass, and he's playing electric bass, even though it's like a jazz group. You know, like upright bass is maybe the more typical sound. Um, but the electric bass affords all of this um, 
polyphony, like playing more than one note at a time, almost like a guitar, which as you get to know Eric, like he's he's first a guitar player. He's in a bunch of metal bands in the Twin Cities and um like he plays the bass like it's a guitar a lot and it it really yeah. helps in that group because the saxophone is a monophonic instrument, so to have a uh, instrument that can play chords and intervals and then and then the great Dave King on drums who was my teacher uh, like 1999 I, I met Dave in 98 and started studying with him in 99 uh, 2000 and 2001 all like real intensely he was a groomsman in my wedding in 2002 and we've been close friends ever since uh, that particular track uh, I think that was recorded in 2000 or right around there um i was around for a lot of the recording of that record and i remember seeing him seeing those guys play that song live a few times before it it ever turned out on a record and he's using a mallet on the snare drum and then his other hand is just his hand like not like a stick and he's he's doing a ton of muffling of the drum manually with his hands so that he hits it and it sustains and then on the next hit when he hits it, it's totally dead because his hand is there and he's kind of like lifting the hand up and down and then like going over to the floor tom, hitting the floor tom and doing the same kind of like controlling of the sustain of the instrument, which is something that up until that point I'd never really considered. Like the, the drums aren't something that I thought of sustain as like an option for me to influ- have influence on as the player. Like, obviously, the, the bassist in the band, like, you know, strum a note and then grab it and it doesn't sustain anymore. And I guess you can do that with cymbals, right? Like, maybe at like the end of a song, I hit a cymbal and then grab it so it doesn't sustain. But the snare drum having a, a length to it that I would cut off, um, that I just had, had never thought of that. I, when, I mm-hmm. saw Dave, when I saw Dave playing that song maybe for the first time, uh, would have been, like, 98 or so. I was only 18 years old and just... Like he, he just broke a lot of the rules for what I thought the drums, you know, the way you would play a drum set. I had just, I had myself in a box about how to play a drum set with a bunch of walls and parameters in that box that I didn't realize I had put there. Yeah. And watching him play and that track in particular, the way he controls his touch, he's playing softly and like just the, the, the rhythms and the shape of the sustain. Uh, it, it really it really changed me like as like I said it just expanded the box that I had put myself in as far as how to play a drum set it's like you use sticks and he's like he's got mallets and you have sticks yeah. in both hands and it's like you know he just has a stick in one hand and then you you know you just hit the drum and let it go and he's like nope I'm gonna hit the drum and then I'm gonna stop it and then sometimes I'm gonna hit it with my hand already on there and it's gonna sound like a weird kind of blip compared to the actual tone that the drum can produce all of that stuff was paradigm shifting for me yeah i mean i'm very jealous dave's mind works in a very specific very out of this world way i mean with the with the rational funk thing he's one of the funniest guys ever we can just see with his humor how his mind is so he looks at things so differently so that's awesome at such a young age you were influenced to looking at it that way Man, uh, it was an absolutely essential link in the chain for who I am as a musician now. Like that, Dave King is a creative genius, uh, and not mm-hmm. only is he just an absolute juggernaut badass at the drum set, he's also really articulate and very well, very well spoken about subject matter that is inherently dense and complex. Like understanding art, the way that he understands it 
you, you can't it doesn't it doesn't work very well to just kind of grope for words and try to like come up with metaphors that don't work and then say to the student like you know what i mean you, you know what i mean like it, it, they're just not yeah, going to learn yeah. anything and he never did that he always just yeah. had really eloquent uh effective ways to convey these really deep points and again like at age 19 when i met him nobody was saying to me hey by the way he's really avant-garde and really out there creatively like no i just assumed that the way he thought was how everybody thought yeah and and then it wasn't until a lot later that i was like oh that dude is special and i got a front yes. row seat to that kind of creative depth uh, when I first started taking lessons from him, it was $20 an hour. And then after about six months of that, he offered me free lessons in exchange for driving him around to some of his gigs. Because he and his wife at the time, like she was working uh, like a night situation and like needed the car. He's like, Steve, how about, um, can you drive me some gigs coming up? And like, I'll just give you free lessons instead. Maybe we could do like two lessons a week to make up for it. And I'm like, um, yes. <laughs> so now yeah. I'm getting now I'm getting two lessons a week for free, and I'm driving him all over town to his gigs that he had with various people, and getting to like watch the show and hang out with the band afterwards, and meet these people and rub shoulders and like see what it's like on the real, like on the street level of what it means to be a freelance musician in Minneapolis, and it was all like unbelievably formative in terms of my development as a musician and I, I would not be where I am now if it weren't for those years. That's awesome. And I'd love to have Dave on the show eventually too. His, his choices I'm sure would be, <laughs> yeah, I know I wouldn't know any of them. <laughs> yeah. But, but they'll all matter, man. Like he'll, he's like, they I said, will. he's, he's a thoughtful dude and, um, he has a, a an unbelievable gift as a communicator. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co 
The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. And check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. Yes, and again, to plug Rational Funk, for him to be that satirical and make a point by also poking fun at it, you have to have the ultimate perspective of whatever you're jabbing at to really have it be effective. And he, and he, like, I promise you, he's riffing all of that. Like, they don't, they're not doing, like, takes to make sure he says the script right. There's no script. He's yeah. just improvising everything. And that's, that's what makes <laughs> it so hard-hitting. I, I remember, actually, that was another thing I learned from Dave really early on, was just knowing that in the, in the jazz context of watching Happy Apple play, I mean, I, I saw Happy Apple play live probably 50 or 60 times before, like, like between the years of 1998 and 1999, <laughs> like just just in there, like I, I would just go see them play almost every week, and it's like these guys are definitely improvising because that's what a jazz context is, and yet Dave's control and even like where his eyes would move on the kit and the fluidness of his motions, it looks as if he's playing something that he has like rigorously rehearsed, something that he has completely scripted. And now he's just going through the motions. Like, that's how smooth his execution is, even though mm-hmm. he's coming up with... I know for a fact that he's coming up with all of this stuff on the spot. But there's there's zero, like, frantic energy. There's zero scrambling. You can't see him, like, trying to come up with what to do next. It's almost as if he's in complete control of what's coming next, even though he's spontaneously composing it. It's just breathtaking. Yeah, I would. I have not seen him live yet, um, and I I can't wait for the day I finally get to. Man, it's gonna change your life, or at least it did for me. All right, so last one. It's uh, let's see if I can pronounce this right. The truth. No, I'm kidding. The truth off of Speak by Dogs of Peace. Yeah. And you said it's the first minute, and then again at one ten. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a Nashville wow. session guy. His name is John Hammond. Uh, plays okay. on, a, on a lot of Christian records and with like a, a cover band called The Smoking Section. It's, it's pretty rad. Um, his brother, Mark Hammond, produces a lot of records in town. I think Mark plays drums too, but uh, John's just like legendary Nashville session drummer. Um, I'm not sure how old he is. He's definitely older than me. Um, and... I came across his playing as I was just getting into the the whole like read the liner notes of the session guys 
period. Like yeah. I was singing with, with country music and, and stuff in the early 2000s. I started paying attention to that. That band is uh, Jimmy Lee Slowis on bass, who's another like Nashville legend, and Gordon Kennedy on guitar and vocals. Uh, all three of them are just like session, you know, just heavyweights. They're so good at their respective instruments yeah. and they know so much. And you can just hear it in how clean all of their performances are. So, like, one of the things that hits me super hard about that particular excerpt is just like you said like how his shuffle is just impeccable the po- the pocket is unreal and he's playing mm-hmm. really complicated stuff with um dynamic control not just rhythmic control but dynamic control that's just next level uh the thing that really blew my mind about that that track though is that fill where he's he's playing um uh like floor tom the right hand racks on the left hand like and then repeat that Two more, and then two kick drums. So like groups of six, like like that kind of like uh, triplet sixteenth note thing. Yeah. And then he does it for the full measure. It's like a a measure of six. One, two, three, four, five. Bah! And then and on beat six, he hits the snare drum. Like. Bah! But leading into the snare drum, he plays one more right hand on the floor tom. So the the like quarter note pulse or the uh, dotted quarter note pulse that leads into that, I guess what what figure would that be? It doesn't matter. The the point is like the, the cycle that leads into that snare drum is seven notes, not six. Okay. Where he takes the same amount of space where he's been playing six notes the whole time, and then just squeezes like one more note in, which just kind of blew my mind uh, thinking about how that mathematically works out. And the only reason I know that is that he's one of the first guys that I ended up getting in touch with via social media. Uh, oh. This is this would be right around like 2008 or so. I had, you know, my MySpace page, <laughs> and I was oh, and yeah. I had and I had, a, I had a blog on WordPress, and I would write on my blog all the time. And I used MySpace to reach out to a bunch of, you know, kind of famous drummers that I didn't have their phone number, but here's like. You know the first iteration of social media, where suddenly these guys are are available for me to chat with if I just ask them. And they and they, it was interesting because they were all like really flattered. Um, mm-hmm. Remember, I talked to Billy Ashbaugh. Uh, I talked to Anton Fig, um, Paul Maybury. Talked to John Hammond, and like you know these these dudes are not necessarily famous <laughs> in any real sense of that word. They're just somebody famous that to me. All the guys you just said. Well, yeah. right, right, but they're yeah. famous because we're yeah. drummers. But, yeah. But it's like they don't have this barrage of DMs on their social media, especially because social media is so new at that time. So all of them responded, yeah. you know, like immediately to my um, inquiries, and I was I was just asking John, like, how did you play this fill at the beginning of the truth? Like, how how's that how's that go? And he explained it to me, and I kind of like oh wow worked it out. Um, a couple years later, we like we we kept in touch. A couple years later, I was in Nashville for rehearsals with Owl City, and it was the first time that I'd ever been in Nashville for like a, a very professional reason, you know. So I felt like uh, go out on a limb and ask John if maybe he wants to like give if I can get together with him and he could give me a drum lesson in person or something. And yeah, he, he was like, "No way, I'm not going to give you a drum lesson in person. How about we go out to lunch instead?" And I was like, um, oh, okay, that you know, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll uh, I was, we were at uh, Soundcheck, re- rehearsing for the tour, and he's like, I'll come by and pick you up, and we'll go to, 
go to the pharmacy. Uh, like, what time are you going to break for lunch? Like, probably like one or so. He's like, okay, is it cool if I come a little earlier and listen to you rehearse? And I was like, uh, yeah, that's totally fine. He came, <laughs> dude, he came at 11 and listened to us wow. for two hours. And then we went out to lunch and he bought lunch for me. And, and the whole time was like sharing with me all of these players that, that he knew because of his age and like, like all these guys from the seventies that I didn't know about. Um, and was just like, he just went out of his way to be, uh, helpful and like give me an experience that really shaped me as again, as a student of the instrument, as an up and coming professional myself, just very like mentor, uh, actions on his part that, Wow, were not necessary. He didn't charge me any money for it. It wasn't like it was. He was just there to help, and really, like, really helped. And I was so anyway. Huge shout out to John for being an absolute badass uh, of a drummer, and like the innovation and the coolness of that fill. But more importantly, the kind of like the demonstration to me of how to handle one's. Um, position in the music world like I'm obviously he can tell that I'm really looking up to him and instead of mm-hmm. capitalizing on that and, and kind of like looking down on me and like like basking in the cool points of in the, like my enamoring instead he, he just like came alongside me and like just taught me a lot and demonstrated so much generosity and, and uh, intentionality with kindness I, that really left a left a mark on me that's awesome. Yeah. Did, did you, I mean, how, how'd you play knowing he was watching you? Was that well, the most nerve wracking <laughs> thing ever? <laughs> I, I think I played pretty well. I mean, I felt good about it. He was, he was, yeah. uh, he had, he was complimentary. This is actually, this is funny that we're having this conversation right now. I was using the pancake back then oh, Okay. in Owl City. This is like uh, the summer of 2012. So okay. long before I even met Maz. And yeah. he specifically said, I, I, we got done with the rehearsal, and he was like, how did you make your snare drums sound so different between a couple of those songs? I didn't see you change drums. Like, what happened? And I was like, oh, I have this little cutout thing that I like put on the drum. He's like, can I see it? I'm like, yeah. Like, we walked up to the drum set. I show him it. I show him the pancake and the donut. I'm like, yeah, they have these different kind of muffling effects. And he was like, wow, that's really cool. And then, like... I remember him, you know, like we, we still have meals together on occasion when I'm in Nashville and he'll, mm-hmm. he'll mention like, yeah, I ordered one of those, uh, one of those new big fat snare drum things with the, with the tambourine jingles on it. I'm really pumped to get it. You know, like, again, this is, this dude <laughs> yeah. is like a generation further down the road than me in terms of the music industry and his career path and all this kind of stuff. And he, he is as, uh, excited about y'all's product as any of us are. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, it blows me away that someone who is that rehearsed wouldn't have, I mean, rehearsing, you know, the scene wouldn't have thought to do something like that well, by then. I, I think he spends most of his time in the studio world. And mm-hmm. honestly, when I'm in the studio, I usually use sheets of newspaper to get that effect okay. instead of the, yeah. the actual Big Fat Snare muffle. The, the, the muffle came up in my world, like I started cutting out drum heads in order to get a clean, like easy to take on and off version of the newspaper, because the newspaper sure. you know leaves all these little like pieces of newspaper all over the floor or whatever, and it's it's hard to like keep on the drum. 
I'm looking for like, you know, I'm playing local gigs. I'm looking for a quick and easy and like kind of pro way to get that sound. So I'm, you know, using, using a razor blade to cut out my own drum heads. And I like, I realized if I cut out an ambassador, the weight of an ambassador was like too much. So I would cut out an emperor and use just one of the plies on an emperor. And then that was like the, a, a better weighting. Um, like, but all of that was just like me just like throwing stuff at the wall to try and come up with the best way to do it, like DIY. And I, I think sure. that was only for live purposes is my point. And I, from what I know about John, he's usually in the studio. Dude, I, I went and saw him do a session, I guess it was two years ago now, uh, April of of uh, 2019. So yeah, a year and a half ago, I was in Nashville to do a clinic at a church and, you know, reached out to him and want, you want to get dinner? And like, oh man, I'm, I'm totally booked, but I am going to be doing a session. Uh, I think it's called Daywind. It's like a Southern gospel lab- label. Mm-hmm. And like, they just, it's like classic Southern gospel music. And he's doing a session um, for that stuff where he's like sight reading. It's like, the kind of the kind of sight reading where you've got two music stands because it's seven pages and they're all taped together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I came in to watch them track. Uh, Dave Cleveland was playing guitar. Who's a kind of a Nashville legend. This guy Jason Webb on keys. Uh, watched these guys one take. Sight reading, like a six and a half minute gospel song. And he he had his uh, rack of snare drums in there. And they just, they one take the whole thing and they come in and it's like, yep, that's it. The producer's, producer's like, yep, that's the one. And so then Dave Cleveland <laughs> goes back in to, to overdub acoustic and Webb goes in there to overdub B3, but John doesn't have to do any overdubs. So he brings me back into the studio to like show me his snare drum rack. And he's, he's got his, uh, you know, like flight case where you remove the front and there's just like 16 drums all on shelves and he's... Those drums, like they're all like dialed into the tuning that he wants for them. Exactly. Instead yeah. of instead of using the same drum to try, this is a long story, but I'm just like he, he's not the kind of guy who's using muffling treatment on the same drum over the course of a live gig. Yeah. He's in the studio, one taking stuff at a pro level. I mean, like that yeah. dude that that really impacted me. I got I, I kind of sat in the control room watching these guys sight read and play like they had rehearsed the tune 20 times and just impeccable i mean it's 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 so inspiring Uh, and again like so much further down the road than where i am right now i'm 40 years old i've been doing this for a while but i can't do that and i i hope someday i can you know yeah that i mean you driving around dave king and going to sessions like that just going to lunch with john it's like that is way better than being in your practice studio and like working on accenting doubles on the E, you know? Well, it's, I mean, both are important. Like there was, sure, there was yeah. a period of time again in my teens and in my early twenties where I was, I was in the woodshed like everybody else needs yeah. to be. Um, but it's, yeah, that, that you're right. That's not the only thing watching, um, YouTube tutorials, practicing on the practice pad, reading articles in modern drummer magazine or whatever. It's like, you, I, there's also these like real life kind of fly on the wall observing experiences that I've had where I can trace a lot of very important lessons to those settings, which I think is why it's so important to get involved in like a scene. Absolutely. To have like an actual teacher or a series of teachers as opposed to just like 
signing up for a web-based thing or or you know just practicing on your own at home like get, getting around other musicians and watching how they do it and learn uh it's it's definitely a big part of my journey at least yeah even just going to local shows i mean sometimes it's like the worst band in the world but the drummer does this one thing with the hi-hat and you're like all right well that's just that's just changed my playing now yes <laughs> you know yes, don't just exactly. only go to the key arena shows or wherever you are right the but, local stuff because a lot of times the people that don't know how to do it think of it in a cooler way than you who you know know everything quote unquote sure sure well the in, i mean innovation is is you know by definition kind of like going against the rule of how to do it and coming up with a different way that turns out to be just as viable it's just not the one that they would have taught you in school yeah well, not to um, totally trivialize or go a different direction, but uh, that is, that's the time. We've been talking for an hour. I, I've loved this conversation. What, I mean, if people don't know who you are, if they don't want to find out more about you, where can they find you on the interwebs and do a little self-promotion here? Well, I mean, I've got a YouTube channel. So if you just look up Steve Gould, the, uh, my last name is G-O-O-L-D, which is somewhat uncommon for the name Gould. So, so if you look up Steve Gould, I'm going to be the only one on, on YouTube that you'll find. Uh, okay. And then that same name, Steve Gould, is my Instagram. Uh, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram lately. I've been having fun with uh, doing Q&As every Thursday and sharing playlists on Fridays and um, sharing like GoPro footage on Mondays and you know just kind of like trying to engage the, the Instagram audience that way. So... Instagram and YouTube are a couple of good spots. And then I, I have a, um online drum lesson thing that I do uh, where I kind of like interact with the users over video chats and then use uh, my content on the website called The Drum Library. So if you look up just thedrumlibrary.com, that's my lesson website. I've been teaching drum lessons for a long time and finally decided to try and like put together a catalog of uh, everything it's kind of like a diary actually or like a, a journal of everything that I okay. think uh, just put into video lessons and all on on the drum library that's great I know on your YouTube you have a, a, a video that's titled how rhythm works and I like the way you describe like a valet parking a car and, and it's 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 a little more of a beginner uh, explanation of what rhythm is but it, right. it's a cool concept and so people if yeah if you're looking for some lessons. I, I, I do appreciate the way you compartmentalize information. So I think a, lo a lot of people would find great value from that. Thanks, dude. No, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I, I really enjoy. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm just kind of a deep thinker in general, I guess. Like I, I enjoy philosophy and all that kind of stuff. I have a degree in theology, actually, from, from my undergrad. But the what that leads to, I guess, is me just like teaching drums for a long time and playing gigs for a long time and just kind of putting everything that I learned, things that people tell me or things that I observe in myself, like putting it through the ringer of my own scrutiny. Like, is this, is this idea going to actually work or does this carry, does this carry any actual weight? Does this hold water? And then like trying metaphors out on my students and seeing which ones they, they grab onto and which ones they don't. And, and then now, again, after having done it for this long, I feel like I've got a good handle on how to get a point across and I, I enjoy doing it. So like, especially over the last few years, I've done a lot more like clinics and public speaking engagements at churches mm -hmm. and colleges and stuff like giving master classes or what seminars or whatever you want to call it. And uh, a lot of that stuff is on the website. Some of it is on YouTube too. And it's fun. It's, it's fun to do, I guess like not everybody's cut out for that. I, I suppose is the way to say it. Like some of my friends back, I remember in my twenties, 
they're working at coffee shops and they're like, how do you, you, you have enough gigs to make, to pay your bills? I'm like, no, not really. I just teach a lot of lessons. And they're like, oh, yeah. I, I hate teaching lessons. And I'm like, dude, I don't. <laughs> I, I love yeah. it. I have a great time. I'm, I'm always game to teach. And, and I feel like it over the years has really sharpened me as a player too, to just figure out how to think about stuff. I guess that's my point. Like thinking deeply about things and figuring out how to think about it in a way that I can convey that to another person who isn't me and doesn't their mm-hmm. mind doesn't work the same way mine does so if i can i kind of have to like take an idea that i understand and reform it into a different shape in order to get them to understand it and i, I enjoy that challenge and it always makes me feel like i've learned something myself after i'm done yeah and i i, I hate that phrase those who can't do teach because i so many of my friends that are teachers they get off on teaching they just yeah. love that seeing that light bulb and that's like the most gratifying thing they can do you know even sometimes more than walking off a stage after playing to 10,000 people it's knowing you've just changed someone's life for the better it's it's a really fun yeah fun dude thing. I that adage that phrase you just mentioned those who can do and those who can't teach like yeah dude I, I carried that with me in a negative sense for a long time uh, and it was it was last summer summer 2019 I guess uh, I, w- I went to Africa for a couple weeks and taught at a music school over there with some friends kind of like volunteering the time and I had mm-hmm. such a blast and I got back from Africa and I shot this uh, series of video lessons for Scott's bass lessons with my friend Ian um, Scott is this dude from London who has a major presence on the online music lesson community through through bass lessons Scott's bass lessons is like a huge platform and I, I was a, a guest on there with my friend Ian, who's a great bass player, and we kind of like team taught all these rhythm section things. And the, those two uh, experiences, teaching in Uganda and then doing the Scott's Bass Lessons things, was like, you know what? Forget about this whole like those who can do and those like I, I'm a teacher. I love teaching. I'm gonna like start playing offense in my life about teaching instead of playing defense. Like oh, I'm only gonna teach if I don't have a gig. Yeah. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna teach because I really enjoy it, and I'm gonna stop kind of like looking down on myself for, for it, which has been a, kind of like a freeing thing. People that say that are in the similar line of thinking of people that say Ringo's a horrible drummer. Anything afterwards, I just don't <laughs> care. <laughs> That's a great metaphor, man. That's a great example. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for coming on, Steve. Uh, hope to see you soon, man. Have a good day. Yeah, you too, Ben. Thanks for having me. All right, peace. See ya. And that's the show. Be sure to check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BigFatSnareDrum. The audio you're hearing was edited in part by Isotope RX8 Audio Editor, so go check that out at Isotope.com. Cheers.